Hi, and welcome to Litigator Libations, a podcast designed to provide short, substantive, and hopefully helpful guidance on discrete litigation topics. I'm Major Alan Abrams, and I'm a defense counsel in the Air Force's Trial Defense Division. Usually I help write the episodes, but I'm filling in this week for Daryl Johnson, who's getting a much-deserved break from pouring his 5 o'clock beverage by himself in front of a laptop. Before we get into this week's episode, I'll note, like we always do, that this podcast is meant to be educational and to help litigators think creatively about the law and their cases. It's not meant to direct how anyone should actually litigate in a particular case. It's also unofficial. The ideas are those of the presenters and do not represent the official views of the United States government, Department of Defense, Department of the Air Force, or the Trial Defense Division. Litigation is an art, and each litigator must develop his or her own style. Always do what you believe is in the best interest of your client, consistent with the law and your professional and ethical obligations. So for this week's episode, we're going to do a two-for-one in terms of our updates on the law. First, we'll hit the current event of the United States versus Cooley court-martial. Then we'll take up the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces' recent decision in United States versus Edwards. For a trial skills segment, we'll cover the business records hearsay exception. Ordinarily, our updates on the law focus on appellate cases on this podcast, but the United States versus Cooley court-martial is a little different because it's a big and current case that just wrapped up at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. Major General Cooley was the first Air Force general to be court-martialed ever. Charged with three specifications of abusive sexual contact in violation of Article 120 of the Uniform Code of Military Justice, he was convicted of only one offense having to do with a non-consensual kiss on the lips back in 2018. So you may, be, may have heard that and thought, wait a minute, a kiss? Abusive sexual contact? Shouldn't that be an assault under Article 128? Well, that's where our update comes in, where we're going to take, do a quick crash course on benefiting from favorable changes in the law. So in the Cooley case, what we're talking about is a change to the statutory provision underlying the offense. Congress did some major changes to Article 120 in 2006, and those changes took effect in 2007. Article 120 was amended again in 2011, and the changes under that revision took effect in 2012. In that 2011 amendment to Article 120, the term sexual contact was defined in relevant part as, quote, any touching, any body of any person, if done with the intent to arouse or gratify the sexual desire of any person. Touching may be accomplished by any part of the body, end quote. So in other words, touch anyone, anywhere, regardless of whether it's ears, nose, elbows, or toes, and you've got abusive sexual contact so long as the touching was for the purpose of sexual gratification. But that's not the statute anymore. The Military Justice Act of 2016, which was part of the National Defense Authorization Act for fiscal year 2017, changed the definition. Instead of any touching anywhere by any body part, sexual contact under Article 120 was limited to a narrow list of touchings of the vulva, penis, scrotum, anus, groin, breast, inner thigh, or buttocks, with the applicable intent. That remains the law today. So, what that all means is that an unlawful kiss in 2022 would, absent certain aggravating facts, be an assault consummated by a battery in violation of Article 128, which has a maximum sentence of confinement of six months, as opposed to, I don't know, seven years? That brings us back to benefiting from later changes in the law. There's actually a whole doctrine for that, called the Doctrine of Abatement. If you look at the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces case of United States v. Schuler, 50MJ254, from 1999, it describes this common law doctrine as basically saying that if Congress changes the criminal code, and the crime isn't a crime anymore, and the case isn't completely all the way through the appeals process and finalized, then the conviction for that crime goes away. 
A more recent citation where you'll see this doctrine come up is in United States versus Chero, 76, MJ, 688, Chero spelled C-H-E-R-O. That's an Air Force Court of Criminal Appeals case from 2017 in which I should note I was one of the prosecuting counsel. Congress can override the doctrine of abatement with a savings clause, so basically something they just bake into the statute, provided the change in the statute still leaves the conduct at issue criminal in some way. When it comes to the change to Article 120 that we've been talking about in relation to non-consensual kissing, there are few different savings clauses that are in play. So Section 5542 of the 2017 NDAA, combined with the Implementing Executive Order 13825, said the changes to the UCMJ's punitive articles wouldn't take effect until the Military Justice Act of 2016 was implemented on January 1st, 2019. There's also a more generalized savings clause in play that's found at 1 United States Code Section 109, which says, quote, the repeal of any statute shall not have the effect to release or extinguish any penalty, forfeiture, or liability incurred under such statute, unless the repealing act shall so expressly provide, and such statute shall be treated as still remaining in force for the purpose of sustaining any proper action or prosecution for the enforcement of such penalty, forfeiture, or liability, end quote. All right, let's unpack all that. So for the Cooley case, where the conduct of which the general was convicted was in 2018, these savings clauses mean that as a legal matter, the conduct doesn't benefit from any favorable change in the law, courtesy of the doctrine of abatement that would otherwise apply under the common law. In turn, that means the general was a few months shy of falling under Article 128, or at least his conduct falling under Article 128, instead of Article 120, even though Congress indicated its intent that that should be the case as early as 2016 when it passed the Military Justice Act. To the extent you think this result is wrong, I'll borrow from Justice Sotomayor in her 2021 concurrence in Terry v. United States, that case having to do with the retroactive statute reducing confinement for certain crack cocaine offenses. She said, Congress has numerous tools to right this injustice. In this instance, for the General Cooley, it, ha- it would be amending the UCMJ. But the text of the implementing statutes is otherwise clear and presently forecloses retroactive application of the more favorable definition of sexual contact to pre-2019 cases. Retroactive application of later changes in the law to benefit clients comes up in another context that trial litigators should be aware of, and that's when laws are interpreted in a manner favorable to appellants while their case is still pending direct appeal. So yeah, this means your client would have been convicted. Citations in military jurisprudence for doing that go back to the Supreme Court's 1987 decision in Griffith v. Kentucky, 479 U.S. 314. It's based on that case that the most recent military case to make it all the way to the Supreme Court, United States versus Briggs, made it there. Lieutenant Colonel Briggs' case was on appeal for a long time for an issue having to do with the makeup of the appellate court that decided his initial direct appeal when the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces decided United States versus Mangahas. So Lieutenant Colonel Briggs, the appellant in Briggs, benefited from the legal holding that placed his conviction outside of the statute of limitations, as in Mangahas, until the Supreme Court made its final decision holding otherwise. There are two takeaways from all of this for trial practitioners. First, be mindful of statutory text when it comes to effective dates of changes in the law. Second, continue to look for objections as appropriate and warranted by your professional ethics, as those issues may preserve your client's case in the appellate process long enough to benefit from favorable changes to and interpretations of the law that may arise while on appeal. Let's turn to the Edwards decision that recently came out about victim unsworn statements. So the charge in the case was murder. The appeal had to do with a video attached to a one-page written unsworn statement, and that 
unsworn statement was provided by the deceased victim's father, who had been appointed by the trial court to effectuate the late victim's right to be heard. But the father didn't make the video. It was, quote, put together by trial counsel, end quote. It was seven minutes long. It included 30 pictures, as well as two video clips of the victim's parents answering questions about their son. Acoustic music played in the background throughout the video. Three takeaways for trial practitioners from the court's decision are straightforward. First, the court punts on whether pre-recorded videos can be a proper way to present a victim's unsworn statement. Now that said, Rule for Courts Martial 1001C1 says the crime victim shall be called by the court martial when exercising the right to be reasonably heard. And that would seem to offer a pretty firm textual basis on which to object if you think that's the best thing to do in your case. Second, where the rule says that the, quote, unsworn statements may be oral, written, or both, end quote. And that's found in the text of Rule for Courts Martial 1001C5A. It really means oral, written, or both. It's not pictures. It's not music. Keep in mind, however, that the same language is found in Rule for Courts Martial 1001D2C having to do with an accused unsworn. So be on the lookout for a similar objection by prosecutors to creative unsworns offered by the defense. That said, there are some distinctions between an accused unsworn and a victim's, and that brings us to our third point. Unlike an accused unsworn statement, which can be made by defense counsel on behalf of a client, a victim's unsworn statement is limited to solely being what the victim or victim's representative wants to share. As the court's opinion in Edwards notes, quote, in producing the video, trial counsel made creative and organizational decisions that lead us to believe that the video incorporated her own personal artistic expression, end quote. The court goes on, quote, unsworn victim statements are not a vehicle by which the government can supplement its sentencing arguments by putting its own statements, oral, written, artistic, or otherwise, into the victim's mouth. Of course, victims may confer with trial counsel in preparation for their unsworn statements, but trial counsel may not misappropriate the victim's right to be heard, as trial counsel did here when she created the video on the victim's family's behalf, end quote. Turning to this week's advocacy focus, we're going to talk about the hearsay exception for records of a regularly conducted activity under Military Rule of Evidence 8036, commonly known as the business records exception. So under this rule, you can prove up what you need to establish admissibility using an affidavit consisting with Military Rule of Evidence 90211. That's not what we're talking about here. Here, we're going to be talking about what you need to do in court with a witness in order to get this evidence in before the court. Under the text of the rule, there are three subparagraph boxes that you have to check, and then I'm going to paraphrase in part here. A. The record was made at or near the time by, or from information transmitted by, someone with knowledge. B. The record was kept in the course of a regularly conducted activity by some organization or entity. And C. Making the record was a regular practice of that activity. We can break down those requirements into a few more steps. Here are seven, though different practitioners, including the Military Evidentiary Foundation's handbook, might break it down slightly differently. So one, there's a record being offered into evidence. I think we know that. Two, that record sets out information. So that's part A of the rule. Three, the information on that record is from a source that is associated with an entity, either a machine or a person such as a member of the entity or an affiliate entity. If it's by a person, usually it's because it's part of their job to put this information in somewhere. So that's also part A of the rule. 
Four, the machine or person that provided the information put it in the record basically at the same time as when the machine or person got the information. That's part A of the rule. Five, if the source is a person, that person had personal knowledge of the information. That's part A of the rule. Six, this entity normally keeps this sort of record because it relates to its ordinary operations. That's part B of the rule. And seven, this process of getting this sort of information and putting it in this sort of record is something the entity ordinarily does. That's part C of the rule. When introducing records in court through witness testimony, you're probably thinking of two main issues when it comes to business records. First, the big thing that you're driving at is trustworthiness. Is the information on the record that you're seeking to admit trustworthy and reliable? If not, as the text of the rule itself says, the opponent of the evidence can challenge it. And if they show that either the source of the information, the method of preparing the record, or the circumstances of preparing the record indicate that the record is not trustworthy, well, then it's out. A case on this that you may want to look at is United States versus Bess, 75 MJ70, a court of appeals for the Armed Forces case from 2016. What all this means is that the depth of your questions having to do with the requirements for admissibility, depth being a topic we've talked about in earlier episodes of this podcast, well, those questions are going to be oriented on, towards building up the trustworthiness of the record. That's especially true because this line of questioning can, to a degree, be pretty boring for the fact finder. A second, and relatedly, is what I think of as the Ghostbusters question. Who are you going to call? You need to call someone as a witness to establish the foundation for admissibility. It has to be someone from the entity who can establish the requirements for admissibility. It doesn't need to be the person who created the record, but they have to know how records are made, maintained, and used within the entity. I mean, you could even call someone from, let's say, Entity 1, let's say it's a hospital, to lay the foundation of Entity 1's records that incorporate business records from another entity. Let's call them Entity 2, like a lab or something, as long as they've got that knowledge about how the record is made, maintained, and used. All right, so let's talk a little bit about how this examination might work at trial. So one thing you're going to be looking to do is figure out a tr good transition to start talking about these records. You could flow into it from your initial introduction of the witness, like right after you cover the sort of introduce yourself, where are you from, where do you work type of questions. Alternatively, you, if you have other matters to get into with this witness and you're circling back to do business records, you can signpost by orienting the witness back to his or her earlier introduction to the court. Hey, you said when we first started talking that you work at Entity X. What is it that you do there? So let's give a general example of how this sort of examination might work, understanding that you may want to go into certain areas more or less based on the needs and facts of your case. You said when we first started that you work at the warehouse. What is it that you do there? What do you do as a supervising manager? How do you keep track of everything that's in the warehouse? You said there's a daily inventory. Can you please explain how the daily inventory relates to what you all are working to on at the warehouse? So why do you do the daily inventory? Who keeps the daily inventory? What's the process for creating the daily inventory? Do the folks who input that information have to personally observe the inventory before they document it? How's the daily inventory documented? When is the daily inventory documented in relation to when the inventory is actually accomplished? How do you all keep the daily inventory documentation? So the, the documents that you actually produce as part of the inventory. Who has access to the daily inventory documentation? 
Are there any processes that you have in place to make sure that the inventories you've done are accurate, like an audit or something like that? Can you please take a look at Defense Exhibit A? Do you recognize that document? How do you know that it's one of the daily inventories? We just walked through the process of how these are created. Can you see you created this one? And as a supervisor, do you know where this particular record came from? How do you know that? Remember, the big target is always towards trustworthiness and reliability of the record that you're offering. You're largely doing that through the organizational equivalent of what you could think of as maybe habit evidence under military rule of evidence 406. Of course, the foundational steps we've been talking about only get you through the hearsay exception. Practitioners must also be mindful of concerns about authentication, which usually you're going to be able to cover through essentially the same questions we just walked through, but also be aware of confrontation clause issues, at least as it relates to records offered by the prosecution under this exception. That's it for this week's episode. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope it was helpful. This was our 20th episode, and the fact that we're even still doing this is because of those of you who've chosen to spend your time listening. Again, thank you. Check in with us again in two weeks when we cover a new topic. Until then, any ideas, comments, or suggestions you have are always welcome. You can email me at allenabrams1 at usdayf.mil. That's A-L-L-E-N dot A-B-R-A-M-S dot one at us.af.mil. Or you can email Daryl Johnson at william.johnson.147 at us.af.mil. Thanks again for listening, and thank you for all you do. I wish you the best of luck litigating your cases.